Okay, so let's go into our, our actual study of the tabernacle. So there's this concept that's really important in the book of Exodus, and it's specifically about the, what I'm calling a parallel narrative, okay? A parallel, a parallel narrative. So from about, I'm going to toggle over here, from about Exodus 25, 1, to about Exodus 31.18, so those six or so chapters, six or seven chapters, we have God giving Moses the design of the tabernacle. Then starting in, ver, uh, in, um, in Exodus 35 or so, and going through basically the end of the chapter, or end of the book, very close to the end of the book, you have the people responding with the build, okay? So what we're going to do as we go through this study is we're going to look at what God says for them to do on, on, a, on a Sunday, and then we're going to look on that same Sunday when they do it. So instead of going chronologically through the book of Exodus, we're going to look at each thing as to where, you know, where God said to build it, how God said to build it, and then what they did to actually build it, okay? So otherwise, if I were to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through this, it would feel redundant because we would hear what God says and then a few chapters later, we would be revisiting the same, basically the same message or a similar. So I want to, I want to, and look, here's the deal. Again, spoiler alert. God gives a very specific design and then the people respond, okay? And that is a really, really important aspect of the tabernacle, okay? So look at a few of these examples with me for just a second. In Exodus 25 and... We'll start in verse um, 10, Exodus 25, and start in verse 10. I'm sorry, yeah, start in 10. And they shall make an ark of shittim wood. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and the cubit and, the ha- um, and a half the breadth thereof, um, and the cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold. Within and without, thou shalt, uh, without shalt thou overlay it, and shall make upon it a crown of gold round about. And thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in the four corners thereof, and two rings shall be in the outer side. So this is, um, we're not going to read all of it, but notice God is directing, thou shalt put the staves into the ark. Verse 16, thou shalt put the ark into the, uh, of the testimony um, uh, which I shall give thee. And thou shalt make a mercy seat, right? It's all directive guidance from the Lord on what to do. Now jump over to Exodus 37. You might keep your fingers there in 25 because we're going to be right back to it. I'm just using three, three very quick examples. Exodus 37, verse 1. And Bezalel made the ark of Shittim wood. Two cubits and a half was the length of it, a cubit and a half the height of it, and the cubit and a half the, uh, I'm sorry, the breadth of it, and a cubit and a half the height of it. And he overlaid it with pure gold within and without and made a crown of gold uh, to it round about. 
And he cast uh, for it four rings of gold to be set, right? In verse four, and he made staves. In verse five, he put the staves. In verse six, he made the mercy seat. In verse seven, he made, did you see the difference? So over in Exodus 25, God says, this is what you're gonna do. In Exodus 37, this is what was done, okay? So we'll look at each of these things the same week that that same pattern, okay? We see the same thing happen with the table of showbread back in, back in Exodus 25, right? Uh, start in verse 20, uh, um, I think I've got, or 23, yeah? Thou shalt make a table of shittim wood. Two cubits shall be the length thereof. Well, if you were to go over to Exodus 37, you'd see they make the table of showbread the exact same pattern. So I just put those, and I think those are on your page. You can look at them if you want, but we will take, not a week for every single thing, but we will most likely dedicate a week to the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat, a week to the Table of Showbread, a week to the lamp um, stand, etc. Right? Um, so, not we won't do that for every curtain and every bracket and that sort of thing. We'll lump some things together, but some of this we will spend a specific week. All right. So that brings us to a question: Why was the tabernacle built? Why was the tabernacle built? And you can see here in our, in our picture um, the, the brazen uh, uh, altar and then the brazen labor kind of behind it and then the entrance. Uh, I think it was Patty that was mentioning that there was a traveling tabernacle that came around. You can actually find these, um, I don't want to call them events, but these attractions, I don't know what the right term is, where you can go kind of like you can go see the ark uh, a replica of the Ark in Kentucky, if I'm not mistaken, you can find these traveling exhibits that kind of recreate it. Um, it's interesting. So we'll we'll dive more into this uh, later in, in looking at it. But does anyone want to guess the approximate value associated with building or replicating uh, the tabernacle? So you have... You have all of this, this animal skins. You have all of this dyes that are necessary. You have a lot of gold. You have a lot of silver. You have a lot of brass or, and copper. Anybody want to... Honestly, I've looked all over. It's, the prices range because there's a little bit of a calculation uh, that goes on. And then when you extrapolate that out, it, you can get quite a range. But anyway, we want to guess what the... In today's value. Yeah, in today's value. Millions. 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 One, one million dollars. Um, why, why was that funny? No. I, I say it like that all the time. About between 12 and 13 million um, is the estimated value. They have replicated the lampstand and you can visit it in the museum in Israel. And it alone is valued at over a million dollars because of the amount of gold. Uh, that's in the lampstand. So uh, again, I've seen wide, wide ranges on this. So this is a big, this is a big undertaking, right? This tabernacle. So why was the tabernacle built? Any thoughts? Yeah. It shows the way of salvation. Shows the way of salvation. So spoiler alert, all of these things are going to point and actually be foundational in our New Testament walk with Christ. Okay, that's why I wanted to call out the fact that we're not terribly familiar with the tabernacle. Why? Well, we don't go to the tabernacle every, you know, every day or every so often and, and take our sacrifices, right? We're not, that's not our system of worship, 
today, right? So as a result, we're not as familiar with that. Like if we had a similar pre-quiz about Calvary or about, uh, you know, the things that Jesus went through, probably would do better, right? Things in the New Testament, because that's our frame, that's our paradigm, that's our, our, our frame of reference. But there's so many things in the tabernacle that picture Christ, right? The table of showbread, right? Stacking six loaves and six loaves, not just for the tribes of, uh, tribes of Israel, but a, a little bit of a foreshadowing of a complete scripture, right? We'll, we'll see those kinds of things. Why else? I think I saw another hand. Yeah. To show God is worthy of worship. Okay. To show God is worship or worthy of worship and he's holy, right? There's, there is, there are rules associated with the holy place, with the holy of holies. Not everybody makes it into the courtyard. Not everybody makes it into the holy place. Not everybody makes it into the holy of holies. They, they respected that. They knew that God dwelt there, which is, you know, again, one of the reasons that God, God ordains and designs this tabernacle so that there is a place where he can meet his people, right? And worship and sacrifice, okay? Any other thoughts? Yeah. Shows the bridge. Okay. To get to God. How, to go Jesus. Okay. To show how you can even approach God. So it's similar to what Teresa said with respect to it's pointing to Christ, but it points how a human can ultimately get into the presence of God. Right? Yeah. Right. Did God want to dwell? He wants to, he wants a place to meet, right? He wants a place to be. All right. So, so these are all good. So let's look at, I think I've got five points for you today. Uh, and we'll go through fairly quickly. First was, uh, and these are in no particular order, right? This is, this, there's nothing, nothing specific about this, but it was a, a way to lead. It was a way to lead. Notice in numbers nine twenty two. Or whether it were two days or a month or a year that the cloud tarried upon the tabernacle, remaining thereon, the children of Israel abode in their tents and journeyed not. But when it was taken up, the cloud, they journeyed, right? So it was an important guide for the nation of Israel, the children of Israel, in their wanderings and ultimately into their conquerings that the, the glory of the Lord come into that place. When he pulled himself back from that place, it was time to pick up a move, all right? What is the wonderful illustration for us in our New Testament life? I mean, God doesn't work exactly the same way, but if he has called you to a specific ministry and then he pulls back a little bit, he may change your heart about that ministry and use his, quote, presence. Yes, he's everywhere at all times, but his clear presence in a place, if he pulls himself back, I mean, that's maybe an indication you need to change ministries or heaven forbid, change churches. I mean, we love having you here. I hope God never pulls back his glory from this place. But if he were, if he were to do that, if he were to take his hand of blessing off of this place and this place loses its way, well, it's time to move on. It's time to move on. So he leads through the tabernacle. He leads because when the tabernacle is set up, he can, he can, he can come, he can show up, he can meet there. And then when his presence pulls back, then it's time to move on. It's also a place of sacrifice, a site of sacrifice. 
So turn to the end of the book of Exodus, which should be the beginning of the book of Leviticus, right? Because Leviticus is, is the next book. So this is probably more practical in a Bible than it is an app, although some apps you can do that and then move right forward. But Exodus 40 and verse 34, and we're going to read this as if, for sake of illustration, as if Leviticus follows immediately after, I mean, like immediately after the book of Exodus. In verse 34, then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That's how I'm getting the theme, right? The glory of the Lord filled the, filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And when the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the children of Israel went onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud were not taken up, then they journeyed not till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day and fire was on it by night in the sight of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. It's a very similar passage that we just looked at in Numbers 9. Okay, now let's act as if we're continuing. Chapter 1 of Leviticus. And the Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation saying, I mean, it really is almost as if the story continues immediately. Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, If any man bring, uh, uh, any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, ye shall bring your offering of the cattle, even of the herd and of the flock. And if his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish, and he shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. Like this is a place of sacrifice. Now it's interesting because most of us would have defined this as the place of sacrifice. The altar upon which the sacrifice was killed, washed, burned, right? Are we generally, this is the place, this outer courtyard is where the, the, where the killing, to be, to be blunt, took place. But that's not where a person's sacrifice happens. Notice, if his, if, in verse um, 3, if his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, if he's bringing a sacrifice to be burnt, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. He's bringing it to that door because not everybody gets to come in that, come in those, uh, go in those, uh, in the outer court. Not everybody, everybody can bring their offering up, but it's a place of sacrifice. Every step of the process, there is some measure of sacrifice, whether it's some, someone giving an offering, whether it's something dying, or whether it's something that has to be done to make sure you're following the rules correctly and not of your own will, you're sacrificing your own will. Every step in the process points to sacrifice. Every bit of it. It's also a precursor to the temple. A precursor to the temple. In 2 Samuel 5, or 7, <clears throat> excuse me, 2 Samuel 7, 5 through 7, Thus saith the Lord, thou shalt build me a house 
for me to dwell in, or for, uh, shalt thou build me a house for, uh, build me a house for me to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and a tabernacle. In all the places wherein I have walked with the children of Israel, spake I a word with any of the tribes of Israel, whom commanded I to feed my people Israel, saying, Why ye build ye not, or why build ye not me a house of cedar? Like, literally, this is a precursor to the temple. It's a stopgap, for lack of a better terms. I hate to minimize it. But God is, is I would argue, uh, I don't know, I want to give him the, the human sinful characteristic of being frustrated, but he is not content, if you will, just walking about in a tent in a tabernacle. He wants a place to dwell and that's why somebody mentioned that he, in the tabernacle, he wanted a place to dwell. It's very interesting. He doesn't dwell in the tabernacle. He spends time in the tabernacle. He dwells in the temple. Okay? That's a very interesting distinction. At least I was not able to find uh, that. And every example that I saw pointed to him not dwelling in the tabernacle. He, he comes upon the tabernacle. Okay, what's the corollary to the New Testament versus the Old Testament? He would come upon men in the Old, the Holy Spirit would, but the Holy Spirit dwells in the believer, right? In the temple. So we start with a tabernacle of flesh. When we get saved, we become the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? There are so many parallels between the tabernacle in this case, in this example, the temple and the New Testament. So it's a precursor. It's a really important precursor to the temple. Without the tabernacle, the children of Israel have nowhere to sacrifice, have nowhere to worship till, until the point where they can actually do so at the temple. Well, they can't build a temple because why? They're wandering in the wilderness. They're literally, at this point, they're not actually wandering. They're journeying. It's, they're not quite to a point where they're going to keep wandering because that's after the spies. And then they, they, you know, they reject the fact that God can, can deliver them. So he's like, you're going to wander, right? So at this point, they're journeying to Egypt as a report, or from Egypt rather, to Israel or to the promised land. As a part of that, God wants a place to meet them, a place for them to be able to worship. So he creates a temporary solution to this permanent worship situation. It's also, it's also a beautiful, beautiful shadow of heaven. I do want you to turn here. I didn't have this on your, on your page, part for, for room, but part, I, I do want you to turn there. Hebrews chapter 8. We see this very important passage in Hebrews, which is talking both about Christ, but also about the tabernacle and the temples and their Old Testament picture going forward. In Hebrews chapter 8, starting in verse 3, for every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have some, uh, somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that, uh, that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, 
who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, he saith, thou shalt, uh, that, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount. But now he hath uh, obtained a more excellent ministry by how much um, also he is a mediator of a better covenant, which is established upon better promises. Okay, so all of this Moses and the priests in the Old Testament could only do so much. Okay, they could only do so much to get people in a right standing with God because we needed an ultimately a priest that could completely die, a, a prophet, priest, and king, though the sacrifice in Jesus Christ that could, that could pay for our sins. The, the, the blood of bulls and goats and rams only can go so far. We needed the pure blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look over in Hebrews 9, starting in verse 1. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. After the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called holiest of all. Again, those names would have also been, I guess, uh, technically acceptable, which had the golden censer and the ark, which we didn't even talk about. The golden censer, the ark of the covenant overlaid with uh, about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. And over it, the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone, every, uh, alone once every year, not without blood, for which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost in this, um, this signifying the, that the way unto the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as yet the first tabernacle was still standing. Literally, the tabernacle shows that there's, it's insufficient, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him um, that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, not of the flesh. It's literally a shadow of, it's a, it's a, it, we, I could have easily called this a prophecy itself unto Christ, but it's a shadow of heaven. It's a shadow of the heavenly, both in structure and in plan. It's beautiful. And then our last point, it was a place to meet. Exodus 29, 43, and there I will meet with the children of Israel and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. 
That you, you wanted to meet with God during this time? If you were, if you were this uh, 15-year-old young man or this 23-year-old young lady or this 8-year-old kid or 42-year-old man or whatever, you wanted to meet with God? You had to walk over to the tabernacle because that's where God was. That's where God dwelt. And when he pulled his hand back, when he pulled that glory, it was time to pack up. It was time to move. So we looked, um, we looked at this before, but in, in Exodus 40, 33 through uh, 35. So Moses finished the work. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. See, there's an interesting concept associated with the curtain that defines the outer court. There's certainly the, 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 the concepts of the, the, the tent itself, if you will, that most people refer to as the tabernacle. See, that was not visible to all. Once I took my sacrifice to the gate and they took that bowl in, when they took my sacrifice in, they'd close those curtains and I just had to have faith. I just, I didn't get to, nor did I have the responsibility to see the sacrifice. There's a lot of people that say, you know, if I could build a time machine and go back at any point in time, I'd be, I'd want to see Jesus. I'd want to be there maybe at his, at his, that, that time frame, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. I mean, that would be amazing to see. Oh, it would be. But how much greater for us who believe by not having seen. There is a privacy, so to speak, with the sacrifice. You just have to give it and trust that the priest is going to deal with it appropriately. And even in this case, when the tabernacle is first finished, God rushes in and dwells that whole place, so much so that Moses can't even go inside. No human is in that place. God is filling that place with his glory, and it's just beautiful, but it's unseen. It's beautiful, but it's unseen. Yet it's a place to meet with God. And that's the hard thing, I think, for a lot of us to wrap our brain around. God seems so distant sometimes. He doesn't seem intimately involved in our day-to-day problems. Some of, the, some of the hardest people that I've tried to evangelize, that I've tried to talk to, they feel like God is distant. They can't see God at work in their lives. They actually attribute evil to God, right? They can't trust that God is doing good and is at work. Oh, but look at Revelation 21. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is now, in Revelation 21, with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Every one of those folks that, see, that thinks God is afar off, well, kind of by definition he is. I know he's omnipresent, he's everywhere, but they've asked him to not be part of, his, uh, of their lives. They've separated that. There's going to come a day in Revelation 21 where God will dwell literally, like, like it will be inseparable. 
his people and him. Oh, it's going to be a beautiful day. It's going to be a wonderful day for those who've called upon the name of the Lord. But for those who haven't, they won't get that opportunity. The tabernacle of God is not with them. And we're going to see just a beautiful picture as we progress through the tabernacle from everything, everything from the very nature of the, the, the tent, the very nature of the materials, the very nature of the oils, everything that is used points to Christ. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you.